Could Mike Pence be the next star witness before the January 6th House Committee? The lead starts right now. Open to an invitation, former Vice President Mike Pence says he would consider testifying before the January 6th Committee if asked. But how serious is he? Meanwhile, another Trump World Insider, Rudy Giuliani, is forced to go to court. What we're learning about what he told a grand jury today in Atlanta, Georgia. Plus, Liz Cheney's big loss. The Republican Congresswoman and January 6th Committee Vice Chair voted out in a Republican primary landslide in Wyoming. But now the big question, will she challenge Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024? And parents, you're feeling the pain on this one. How much more school supplies cost this year? CNN is adding up the shopping list. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead. Former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani just wrapped up his testimony after spending roughly six hours under oath in front of a Fulton County, Georgia grand jury. Giuliani's lawyer warned that his client might not be responsive to the questions he was asked, saying, quote, if they want to play hardball, we know how to play hardball, unquote. We do know other witnesses who have appeared before the grand jury have been asked about Giuliani's meetings with Georgia lawmakers, where the mayor pushed bogus claims of election fraud. And Atlanta prosecutors have warned Giuliani he is a target of their criminal investigation into Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election in that state. Also today, former Vice President Mike Pence made a stop in the first of the nation primary state of New Hampshire today at an event popular among those considering a run for the White House. And Pence may have sent a message to the January 6th House Committee. I don't want to prejudge. If there's ever any formal invitation rendered to us, we'd give it due consideration. CNN's Sarah Murray starts off our coverage today from Atlanta, Georgia, with more details on why Giuliani is under investigation by these prosecutors. We will not talk about this until it's over. It's a grand jury, and grand juries, as I recall, a secret. Rudy Giuliani keeping a tight lid on the six hours of grand jury testimony that just wrapped here. Just days after prosecutors told him he's now a target in the criminal investigation here into efforts to subvert the 2020 election results. Giuliani is the closest advisor to Donald Trump to be named a target in the Georgia investigation, raising questions about Trump's own criminal exposure here. The Trump investigation is ongoing. As a district attorney, I do not have the right to look the other way on any crime that may have happened in my jurisdiction. Ahead of today's appearance, Giuliani's attorney warning, if they want to play hardball, we know how to play hardball. And saying prosecutors are delusional if they think Giuliani will discuss his conversations with Trump. They asked the questions and we'll see. For well over a year, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has been running a criminal investigation focused on efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election. We are going to look at everything until that investigation is complete. She's looking at potential crimes, including making false statements to state and local government bodies, solicitation of election fraud and conspiracy. Giuliani was among the loudest voices spreading falsehoods about the election in Georgia. The recount being done in Georgia will tell us nothing because these fraudulent ballots will just be counted again. Investigators have been scrutinizing Giuliani's three appearances before Georgia lawmakers and other state officials, where the former New York mayor spread conspiracies in the wake of the 2020 election. You can see them counting the ballots more than once, two, three, four, five times. 
you would have to be a moron not to realize that that's voter fraud. Like Giuliani, the 16 Trump backers who agreed to serve as fake electors are also targets of the Georgia probe. The president's lawsuit contesting the Georgia election has not been decided or even heard. We held this meeting to preserve his uh, rights. This week, 11 of them, including Georgia Republican Party Chairman David Schaefer, went to court asking a judge to disqualify Willis from the investigation. Now, an attorney for Giuliani refused to say what he told the grand jury today. We're also learning that another Trump attorney, John Eastman, is going to have to show up here in Georgia and appear before this grand jury. He was trying to quash his Georgia subpoena, but a judge today said, look, even if you believe you might be a target of this investigation, you still have to show up. You can invoke your Fifth Amendment rights, but you have to be there. Jake. All right, Sarah Murray in Fulton County, Georgia, for us. Thanks so much. For more on the latest in the Trump investigations, I want to bring in CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider and CNN's Athena Jones, who's in Manchester, New Hampshire, where former Vice President Mike Pence spoke earlier today. So, Jessica, let me start with you. Trump's team, they're on the clock. They have to tell a judge by 9 a.m. tomorrow whether they support unsealing the Mar-a-Lago affidavit, which would explain in detail uh, why that raid took place. How does that factor into the judge's decision, do you think? Well, you know, the judge will be able to get a look at the Trump team's legal arguments once they submit their filing tomorrow morning. The DOJ has already submitted its arguments. That was a Monday court filing. And then the judge here will be peppering both sides with questions at the hearing at 1 p.m. It will be after that that the judge will probably deliberate and make that decision whether to unseal the affidavit. But what we know is that the DOJ is adamantly opposed to unsealing this affidavit. Jake, as you mentioned, this affidavit lays out the entire reasoning that they wanted to get this search warrant. It lays out the probable cause. So it is a lot of specific details. And DOJ is saying if this is released, it would completely derail their investigation. They say it contains information about specific investigative techniques, also sensitive information about multiple witnesses here. So you can expect DOJ will be really arguing forcefully against this. Now, we're not quite sure exactly what Trump team's legal argument will be, but it's likely since we've seen Trump and his allies really arguing for full, for full disclosure here that they'll want uh, at least parts of this affidavit released. But we'll see more when they do submit that filing tomorrow morning. And then again, that uh, hearing starts at 1 p.m., Jake. All right, Athena, uh, Vice President Pence says he would at least consider an invitation to testify before the January 6th committee, but he also says he has some concerns. What are those concerns? That's right, Jake. He hinted at potential executive privilege issues. Listen to what he had to say. If there was an invitation to participate, I would consider it. On the Constitution, we have three co-equal branches of government. And um, any invitation that be directed to me, I would have to reflect on the the unique role that I was serving in as vice president. Um, It'd be unprecedented in history for a vice president to be summoned to testify on Capitol Hill. But I, as I said, I don't want to prejudge. And so he says he doesn't want to prejudge and that any formal invitation he receives would give, be given due consideration. Uh, but a source uh, with knowledge of Pence's thinking on this matter cautioned against uh, reading too much into, that, into those remarks. This source telling my colleague Gloria Borger that the former vice president would have serious constitutional concerns about appearing before the January 6th committee and pointing to those remarks you just heard from Pence about co-equal branches of government and having to consider his role. Uh, Pence also believes, according to this source, that 
much of the information related to his experience on January 6th is information the committee already has because his, his then chief of staff, Mark Short, and one of his lawyers, Greg Jacob, have both testified before the committee in full. Of course, the January 6th committee, when asked to respond uh, to Pence's remarks, uh, declined to do so. He was also asked about the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, and he reiterated his concerns about it, saying, uh, calling on Attorney General Merrick Garland to give the American people a full accounting of the reasons that search was necessary, saying this unprecedented search should lead to unprecedented transparency. And he said that Republicans can, you know, can, can hold the, uh, the AG accountable while not attacking the FBI rank and file, which is a, a line that got a lot of applause. Jay. All right. Athena Jones, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Let's bring in former assistant U.S. attorney Ellie Honig. A Ellie, walk us through what likely went on in that grand jury room today. Most of us have never seen a grand jury, been part of a grand jury. How does this work? Giuliani testifying today. Yeah, Jake. So here's who's present inside the grand jury room. The prosecutors who are asking the questions, the grand jurors themselves, who are just normal civilians, up to 23 of them, a court reporter who's taking down everything that's said, and the witness, in this case, Rudy Giuliani. Notably absent, there's no judge inside the grand jury and there's no defense lawyer inside the grand jury. So Rudy Giuliani had to go in there himself. Of course, he's been a lawyer for five decades and a former prosecutor, so he's not exactly out there in the wind. Now, importantly, people may be wondering, why would Rudy Giuliani have been in there for six hours? He might have been testifying. He might have been invoking his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And he might have been invoking other rights or other privileges, including the attorney-client privilege. One other note I just want to make is that uh, you heard in that clip um, former Vice President Pence say it would be unprecedented for a former vice president uh, to uh, speak or, you know, to speak, to testify before Congress. Gerald Ford uh, testified before Congress about the Nixon part. He was actually president, not vice president. Um, just uh, worth noting there that I'm not sure that that was factually accurate what the vice president said. Do you think that in his testimony before the grand jury, Rudy Giuliani actually answered questions? Or do you think if you were his lawyer, would you have told him uh, that... Uh, just to invoke his right of Fifth Amendment, his Fifth Amendment right to against self-incrimination. I would have said we are going Fifth Amendment all the way here. And it's easy to ridicule somebody for taking the Fifth, but that is any person's constitutional right. It's Rudy Giuliani's constitutional right here. And here's the thing, Jake. Rudy Giuliani has already been told he is a target of the DA's investigation. That means in prosecutor parlance that prosecutors believe they are likely to seek an indictment against him. And given that to me, it's a no-brainer that you take the Fifth. Now, one thing, though, under Georgia law, you can't just take the fifth in blanket manner. You have to take it to each specific question that you're asked in case the prosecutor wants to someday challenge that in front of a judge. Obviously, this is complicated by the fact that Giuliani was Trump's lawyer, one of many, but was one of them. And Giuliani's suggesting that everything he did, every, every comment he made and everything he did was covered by attorney-client privilege. Take a listen. I was his lawyer of record in that case. The statements that I made uh, uh, are either attorney-client privileged because they were between me and him, or they were being made on his behalf in order to defend him. It's one thing to say that on Newsmax, of course. It's another thing to actually try to make that argument in front of a, a judge. Um, does that argument actually hold water? And, and is there anything prosecutors can do to force him to answer questions? So no, Jake, that does not hold water. Rudy Giuliani is way off there. Certain communications that Rudy Giuliani had individually with his client, Donald Trump, 
may be protected by the attorney-client privilege, but not if they relate to an ongoing crime. But the second part of Giuliani's statement there, that the public statements that he made as part of his representation of Donald Trump, that their privilege, that is nonsense. That is absolutely not the case. Now, could prosecutors try to force Rudy Giuliani to testify? It's a little complicated because if Rudy goes into that grand jury room, says, I claim attorney-client privilege, you can't physically force him to talk. As a prosecutor, you then have to go to a judge and initiate litigation, which takes time. So prosecutors will have to figure out, is it worth it to fight for that testimony? You disagree with how Fulton County prosecutors have gone about this. You think this was perhaps an unfair way to bring Giuliani in. Explain. I do, Jake. So it is widely observed prosecutorial practice. It's not a rule or a law, but it's seen as good, ethical, fair prosecutorial practice that once you've designated somebody as a target, as somebody you are likely to indict, you don't then subpoena that person because the reason you tell the person that they're a target is out of a sense of fair play to protect and respect their rights. So they don't come in and unknowingly incriminate themselves and to tell someone they're a target and then say, now I'd like you to come in under oath and we're going to force you to testify. There's really a tension there. So the DA is not bound by that. But generally speaking, I think it's better and widely observed prosecutorial practice not to subpoena somebody who you've called a target. Among the potential crimes that the prosecutor is investigating is making false statements to state bodies, to local government bodies, as well as solicitation of election fraud, conspiracy. Do you see evidence of a strong case for any of those charges against Rudy Giuliani? Well, Jake, the the most straightforward case is the false statements that he made to the Georgia state legislature and the Georgia state Senate, because there you need to basically prove two things. Were the statements false? These statements that Rudy Giuliani made were wildly, ridiculously, provably false. And then the second part of that was, did he know? And I think one of the questions I'd be asking him if I ever had him in the grand jury was, what was your basis for the statement about these suitcases that was wheeled in? What were you basing these claims on? But I think to me, that is a much more straightforward and easier to make case than the broader election interference cases. A source familiar uh, with his thinking says former Vice President Mike Pence uh, would have serious constitutional questions and issues about appearing before the January 6th committee. If you were advising the committee, how would you recommend they go about getting evidence from Pence, who obviously uh, was under a great deal of pressure from Donald Trump and other Trump team members to exercise a, a, a duty he did not have under the Constitution, but one that they were pushing him to do to send electoral votes back to states of Biden won? Well, Jake, I would tell the committee that, first of all, if you stripped away the title, the fact that Mike Pence was vice president, he would be a central, a crucial witness here because he was a witness to not just the conversations that Mark Short or Greg Jacob may have seen, but one-on-one conversations between himself and Donald Trump, where we believe there was pressure applied according to the public reporting. Now, if the committee is serious about getting Mike Pence to testify, they're likely going to have to subpoena him. It certainly sounds from his comments in New Hampshire that he's not going to go in there voluntarily. He may invoke executive privilege. He may have some executive privilege claim as to his conversations with the president, but not if they related to criminal conduct. So if you're the committee and you really feel it's important to get Mike Pence's testimony, you better be ready to subpoena him and potentially to fight in the courts. As a practical matter, Jake, I don't think they have the time for that. Their clock is going to expire in January of 2022. They just may not have the time as a practical matter. All right, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Coming up next on The Lead, a landslide loss for Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney in Wyoming. But this might not be the end of her political career. What is she saying about 2024? Plus, a water fight brewing out west. Why experts say the Biden administration did not go far enough when calling on states to cut their supply from the Colorado River. 
And we're also getting new details just in from Kabul, Afghanistan, a deadly blast in a mosque. One year, notably, after the U.S. withdrawal. We're going to go live to Afghanistan ahead. Stay with us. In our politics lead now, fresh off a brutal primary loss, the vice chair of the January 6th committee, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, is already considering her next move. Cheney told the Today Show earlier today she has not made any decisions yet, but she is, quote, thinking about running for president. Overnight, Cheney's campaign filed paperwork to create a political action committee, which would give her a new tool through which she can carry on her fight against former President Trump and his efforts to undermine democracy. Cheney lost her Wyoming Republican primary race last night in a landslide to lawyer Harriet Hageman, who was backed by Trump and is repeating his lies about the 2020 election. Joining us now live to discuss the former Republican governor of New Jersey, Christine Todd Whitman. She's also a former EPA administrator and a founding member of the newly formed Forward Party, which embraces a moderate approach to issues. Um, governor, thanks so much for joining us. What is Cheney's loss, which was rather overwhelming, tell you about the state of the Republican Party? Well, it tells me what I believed all along, that it's no longer a party. It's a cult. It's a cult of Donald Trump. He controls the apparatus and the people who believe in Donald Trump believe in Donald Trump. I mean, this is a woman who voted with Trump 90 percent of the time. And, and it was only when she finally stood up and said, I will not support these lies that are undermining people's confidence in our in our government and our, our rule of law. And she stood up as a patriot. And, and yet these people who claim to be really great patriots and all they care about is the good of the country are willing to walk away from her in such huge numbers. It just tells you that this is where the Republican Party is. And uh, that's where it's going to stay for quite a while, I'm afraid. The Lincoln Project said in a statement about Cheney's defeat, quote, uh, tonight the nation marks the end of the Republican Party. What remains shares the name and branding of the traditional GOP, but is in fact an authoritarian nationalist cult dedicated only to Donald Trump, unquote. And it sounds like you agree with that. I've been saying that for a while. I, I've been saying that for quite a while because you could see it happening. Um, when they didn't adopt a platform, when the Republican Party didn't adopt a platform at the 2020 convention, essentially what they were saying is we have no central core beliefs. We believe whatever Donald Trump tells us to believe whenever he says. And that's not a party. A political party needs to have at least a central core of shared beliefs of how you approach problems anyway. And the Republican Party doesn't have that. It's just whatever they're told to do. And that's that's a cult. Hageman's victory means yet another election denier, yet another person who lies about American democracy in the 2020 election is on the ballot this November and could very well become a member of Congress. I want you to take a listen to what Congresswoman Liz Cheney said last night. No American should support election deniers for any position of genuine responsibility where their refusal to follow the rule of law will corrupt our future. We're the oldest democracy in the world. Our survival is not guaranteed. History has shown us over and over again how poisonous lies destroy free nations. Americans are, however, voting for election deniers up and down the ballot in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, all over the country. Why? Well, again, this is what Trump has told them to do. They've bought into this fact that everything that happens, every time he says it's all fake, it's, they believe it. 
And that's why the general elections become so terribly important. It's one of the reasons that at Forward, we're going to be supporting those candidates, Republicans and Democrats and, and independents who are standing up to those who are trying to continue this argument over the 2020 elections. It's really scary to me when you have people who are running for the offices of secretary of state or governor who have direct impact on how votes in elections will be handled how votes will be counted, uh, to put them in office if they're election deniers. That's a truly terrifying challenge for our democracy if that happens. And yet we have them, as you point out, all over the country, and they've won these primaries. So the general election is increasingly important. It, it, it doesn't surprise me because I'm afraid I've seen the Republican Party going this way, as I have so many, for quite a while. So I've kind of given up because Trump does control the apparatus and he has this cult following that will just do anything that he tells them to do. And, you know, a lot of them are, I'm sure, think they're doing the patriotic thing. But if they'd stop and think for a nanosecond, do they really want someone overseeing their elections who doesn't believe in the system? Uh, I don't think they'd vote that way if they really thought about it. Congresswoman Cheney said this morning she's thinking about running for president. and She has not made up her mind. Uh, let's talk about your new political party, the Forward Party. You said uh, that you will, that your party has said that you will, quote, support uh, selecting can select candidates in November who stand up for democracy, even if they come from outside the new party. Um, have you reached out to Congresswoman Cheney? Would you consider working with her on a campaign if she does run for president as a Republican or an independent? Well, let me just say that I think the best, if she tries to run for president as a Republican, she'll get nowhere. I think the forward party is the mechanism for her if she wants to run, but we're not there yet. What we're looking at is those 500,000 elected offices across the country that are the ones that are closer to the people as well as Congress and the Senate, and we will be wherever we can. What we don't want to be, there's people say, well, you're just going to be a spoiler. No, we will be supporting Republicans, Democrats, independents, if they are those who will stand up to the big lie, if they are centrist, and we'll support, we'll have our own candidates in races where we can't find that. All right. Former Governor Christine Todd Whitman, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. A pleasure. We have some tragic breaking news in our world lead reports of multiple casualties after an explosion at a mosque in Kabul, Afghanistan. CNN's Clarissa Ward is in that city. Clarissa, the explosion apparently happened during evening prayers. That's right, Jake. So from what we know so far, this took place in an area in the north of Kabul called Kherkhana. According to Emergency, which is a hospital that's run by an Italian NGO, 27 people were brought to their facility. Three of them died upon arrival. Uh, at least seven children were among those injured, including one five-year-old boy. But the fear here is that that death toll is going to be significantly higher. Um, we don't yet know exactly who was responsible uh, for this attack or what was the motivation behind it. But it does really bring home for people just how difficult life here continues to be and how dangerous it continues to be, even though things are much safer than they were this time a year ago, per se. That NGO emergency saying that they have had six mass, mass casualty uh, events take place in August alone. And there is an ongoing insurgency being waged by ISIS-K or ISIS-Khorasan. Uh, primarily, they've been targeting the Taliban, uh, but also targeting Hazaras and Shia minority 
um, sex. And so the question at this stage is who is responsible? What was the motivation? We don't have a clear sense of that yet, Jake. But again, uh, this looks like it's going to be very deadly indeed. So, I mean, if this uh, had happened two years ago, we would have suspected that the Taliban was responsible for it. But now they control uh, the government, obviously. So but the, the, the violence, as you note, uh, as a daily uh, drumbeat uh, continues. It does. And it's interesting because, you know, you talk to the U.N. and they would say the number of civilian casualties has decreased threefold in the seven months since the Taliban took over as compared to the 10 months in the run up uh, to the Taliban taking over. So it is definitely safer here. But there is this insurgency roiling on in the background. There have been a number of attacks uh, since we have been here. One targeted a prominent cleric uh, who was very supportive of the Taliban, another targeting uh, Shia Muslims in a different part of the city. This appears to be the largest since we arrived. And again, the concern is that you're going to see those casualty figures get higher and higher. The Taliban has been really trying to keep a tight lid, though, on, first of all, letting journalists get anywhere near the scene and get any kind of information. They haven't been releasing figures uh, very quickly. And that's partly because they are keenly aware that the one thing they have been able to do is to provide a modicum of security in this country. And so this ISIS-K insurgency, if indeed ISIS-K is responsible for this attack, poses a direct threat to that promise that they have given people, Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward in Kabul, thank you so much. Turning to Putin's war on Ukraine, Ukraine has officially claimed responsibility for attacking three Russian military targets in Crimea, including an airfield, an ammunitions depot, and an airbase where seven Russian planes were destroyed. Video geolocated by CNN shows a record amount of traffic leaving the Russian annex peninsula, heading back to Russia after the airbase attack last week. And now Ukrainian officials are dropping hints at plans for a massive counteroffensive, and not just in the south. According to one defense official, the attacks will include, quote, very acute events on the entire front. CNN's David McKenzie in Ukraine talks to soldiers who nearly lost everything but are still willing to go back to the front lines. A coffee and a cigarette. That's all Andriy asked for. After field surgeons amputated both of his legs. Okay, you're a fighter. You'll be okay, they told him. I try to stay positive, and that helps me to survive. A veteran of Ukraine's war, just nine days into this conflict, Andriy was clearing cluster munitions when they exploded. It left him bowed, but not broken. It's hard, but this is my task, to stay upright, he says. And I'm doing it. Maybe I'll even return to duty. At a rehabilitation center in Venezia, the soldiers often choose camo prosthetics. The artisans have been doing this for nine decades, putting soldiers back together. And the prosthetics, the physical rehabilitation, isn't enough. How is the attitude or the hope for a patient important in this process? It's 50-50. 50% depends on our doctors and 50% depends on the soldier and his mental health. If he doesn't want it, doctors can help him. How do you feel about this 
Аж думаю. I'm very sorry for the younger men who are dying in this war, says Andrei. For permanent soldiers who've been going to the front since 2014, I understand. But for the younger guys, I feel sorry for them. Russia's invasion sent 23-year-old Serhi far from home to the northeastern front. He felt proud to defend his homeland. Our orders were to push the enemy from the front line, he says. We were too close to the enemy. Russians attacked their position with overwhelming force, with tanks and mortars. Yes, I'm very angry, says Serhi. But first of all, I'm angry because they attacked Ukraine. And I'm angry about my leg. Of course it's much better when you have your own legs, says Andriy. But now I understand that the wheelchair and the prosthetics are part of my body. It's physically very, very hard. It's very hard. You can see the pain in Andriy's face. And, you know, Jake, his own son, wants to go and fight on the Eastern Front. He said there's no way he's going to allow him to do that. He says he wants to one day have grandchildren. It's quite extraordinary. There are people, there are soldiers who go to that facility, get their prosthetic legs, and then demand to be sent back to the front. In fact, a few days before we were there, there was someone who came back to have his repaired because it was damaged in an attack, and then he's going right back again. Jake? Incredible. David McKenzie in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, the costs that many parents just cannot escape. This year's expensive school supply list. See just how much more families are paying to send kids back to school and a resource that is offering some financial help. Stay with us. Inflation struggles top our money lead. Retail sales held steady from June to July. Government data showing consumers are using the money that they're saving thanks to lower gas prices for online shopping. It comes just in time to shop for school supplies. But CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich has a warning. Be prepared for a severe case of back-to-school sticker shock. I have three kids. All the kids will be in school five days a week. It's a... It's going to be an interesting year. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff that kids need for school. It's nerve-wracking because it is a lot of stuff. It's a new school year. Ready to go. I'm ready to go. And this year, the average American household will spend $864 on back-to-school shopping, 40% higher than before the pandemic. Like everything else that costs more, parents can blame inflation. I was um, surprised about the, you know, cost of like pens and paper and notebooks and all of that. That went up. It's beyond the basics. Tape is up almost 70 percent. Glue, 30 percent. Sneakers, 12 percent. And backpacks, up 2 percent. Everybody needed new shoes. Everybody's feet grew like crazy over the summer. Everybody knew new backpacks. You have to prioritize what they really need versus what they want. It's not just parents feeling the pain. We can't keep up with the increase in prices. Daniel Solo has owned this school supply store in Queens, New York for 20 years. 
He says trying to keep up with rising prices makes it hard to not pass that cost down to the consumer. I am not going to raise the price on what I already have in the store, so I'm going to absorb that. Is that a loss? It minimizes my profit margin, and when you do that, it's hard to stay in business. Before the pandemic, teachers were already spending an average $478 out of pocket on school supplies each year. Inflation has likely pushed that number even higher today. Elementary school art teacher Deborah Sassane is shopping for art supplies. $399, $299. How many of these do you have to purchase for your class? I usually buy about 48 of these. So that's a couple hundred dollars just on glue. Glue, Glue. yeah. And it's, you know, it's important. Which is why organizations like Kids in Need Foundation in Minnesota provide free school supplies for more than 300,000 teachers and 7.8 million students each year. With the high cost of inflation and prices, etc., teachers are concerned. And we're seeing all across the U.S. a demand for core essential school supplies. This is my second cart, and definitely I probably am saving hundreds, if not maybe even thousands of dollars. You know, popping colors. But for some teachers, this year's extra expense is still worth it. But does that affect your personal finances? Um, yeah, so I'll cut back on something else, because when you're an educator, the little eyes that are looking at you are the need. And even though U.S. households are individually expected to spend more on back-to-school supplies this year, the National Retail Federation says that overall U.S. consumer spending on back-to-school is expected to be flat compared to last year. And that's because individual items may be more expensive, but consumers are expected to do less back-to-school shopping. And, Jake, last year we were warning folks to get out early to do their back-to-school shopping over the summer because of supply chain issues. Well, they heard us along with retailers. Retailers got product in early this year. Some even have excess. And 56 percent of shoppers started their back-to-school shopping in July of this year compared to 44 percent last year, Jake. So the supply is there. It just costs more. Jake. All right, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thanks so much. Despite an extreme drought and water levels at historic lows, critics say states will likely ignore calls to cut back on the supply coming from the Colorado River. We're going to take a closer look at why Next. In our Earth Matters series, something of a five-alarm fire for states that rely on water supplied by the Colorado River. It's drying out at a shocking pace, fueled, of course, by the climate crisis. The Biden administration called upon the states to come up with a plan to reduce their usage, but gave no real outlines of a plan and no deadline. One water expert says they got a, quote, softly worded kind letter, adding, quote, it's kind of like if you keep telling your dog no, the dog starts ignoring you, unquote. CNN's Bill Weir is at Lake Mead in Nevada, one victim of this brewing water crisis. And Bill, clearly gentle suggestions will not cut it here. Yeah, there's a sense among Western water managers that they expected the feds, the Bureau of Reclamation, to sort of be the tough parent and say, these are the new cuts. You guys have to adjust accordingly. The feds are saying, no, you squabbling seven states, you guys have to figure it out, despite 100 years of upper and lower basin tension. But it is an emergency. While all this happens, Lake Mead is evaporating. Here's the understatement of the decade. Uh, Launch your boat at your own risk. Low water levels, just for perspective. If you look to the top of this hill... 
way up there where there's a little glint of a, of a reflected windshield. That's where the water was in the year 2000. And then if we swing back over here, that's when this 23-year mega drought, 23-year mega drought uh, started, the worst scientists believe, in 1,200 years. Here's where the water line was in 2008 when Barack Obama uh, was elected, not exactly ancient history, and this is all that's gone ever since. And now they, the states kind of came together on an improvised teardown, step down of release plan that kicked in as a result of the water levels here, but they actually fudged the math a little bit. It's much lower than they are reporting, but they did that to avoid mandatory cuts in California, which is the biggest uh, user of this water. But Jake, I'm not even to 2000, and 18 here yet. It goes way down there. And as a result of this, we're having all these grim discoveries of late. And, and Bill, um, as you alluded to, uh, human remains keep being found uh, along the lakes or rapidly receding shoreline. Um, have officials been able to identify these victims? Not yet. Uh, this last uh, discovery happened Monday. Uh, it was the fifth total. It may be uh, you know, part of a skeleton that was discovered previously on the swim beach, which is just around the corner. Uh, over here, there's the suspected homicide. They found a, a corpse in a barrel with a gunshot wound, and the lake water had preserved the clothing and shoes enough that they could date it to the 70s or early 80s. They think it might have been a mob hit, but they're finding World War II era vessels at the bottom of this. The intake valve from the 70s is now exposed. And think of this like a martini glass. It gets smaller as it gets bottom. And we're scary close to the bottom, Jake. All right, Bill, we're at Lake Mead. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. A U.S. naval officer in prison overseas being held by an American ally. His family says the sentence against him, the jail sentence, is way too harsh. And they're going to join me ahead to explain what they're asking of President Biden. That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the Bible and an illustrated adaptation of Anne Frank's diary. These are just two of the 41 books being removed from shelves in one Texas school district, even though the books have already been reviewed and approved. So why are they being pulled now? Plus, former Vice President Mike Pence says he would consider testifying before the January 6th House Committee with a big caveat Former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton will join us live to weigh in. And leading this hour, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney accepts defeat in her Republican primary and is already focusing on the future. Are you thinking about running for president? It, uh, that's a decision that I'm going to make in the in the coming months, Savannah. I'm not going to make any announcements here this morning, but, uh, but it is something that I, uh, I'm thinking about and I'll make a decision uh, in the coming months. After her huge primary loss to the Trump-backed candidate Harriet Hageman, Cheney vowed to keep fighting against Trump, launching a leadership pact called The Great Task. Joining us live to discuss CNN Chief National Affairs Correspondent Jeff Zeleny, live from Jackson, Wyoming. Jeff, just how bad was this loss for Cheney? Well, Jake, in the short term, it was a very bad loss, 37 points. For any sitting member of Congress, that is almost unthinkable, certainly someone with the last name of Cheney here in a state like Wyoming. But certainly that gives you an indication of how much of a hold that Donald Trump still has on this Republican Party, which certainly should come as no surprise. But Cheney supporters, of course, were not expecting a win, but they were expecting a much tighter margin to send a stronger message that there is a market, that there is an appetite for more uh, pushback against election lies 
lies and misinformation. But that margin certainly uh, is short-term bad news. But the congressman believes it could be long-term good news, and this is why. They believe that uh, she has not compromised her principles during this campaign. She didn't equivocate like many Republicans have done uh, throughout their primary season. So they believe she leaves more enhanced. The reality is we won't know if that's true for months to come. Overnight, Cheney's campaign filed paperwork to create a leadership political action committee. What, what do we know about how Cheney plans to use it? Well, Jake, this is what they've been signaling for the last several days, that she needs some type of a platform to launch the next uh, chapter of her political life, if you will. And they're going to try and find Republican candidates and perhaps independents and others to endorse who do not... Uh, support election of denialism, who believe the truth. But there may be a limited number of candidates they can find to do that. She also can use this as her vehicle to uh, talk about her own campaign and explore things. But take a listen to how she framed this last night when she mentioned the name of her new uh, super PAC called The Great Task. The great and original champion of our party, Abraham Lincoln, was defeated in elections for the Senate and the House before he won the most important election of all. Lincoln ultimately prevailed, he saved our union, and he defined our obligation as Americans for all of history. Speaking at Gettysburg of the great task remaining before us. So, of course, that was the last line in the Gettysburg Address that Abraham Lincoln used those words, the great task of facing the nation. Uh, certainly, the congresswoman tried to draw comparisons to Abraham Lincoln. Jake, unknown if those comparisons actually apply to this modern age of Donald Trump and this Republican Party. But one thing is clear is uh, Liz Cheney is going to be returning to Washington to set her sights back on that January 6th committee. She's still in Congress for four more months. That is her focus now. Those hearings resume in September. All right, Jeff Zeleny reporting in Jackson, Wyoming. Thanks so much. The results in Wyoming show just how difficult things have become for anyone who deviates in any way from the Trump party line in today's Republican Party. Senior data reporter Harry Enton is with us. Harry, what does the data tell us about how dominant Trump remains a year and a half after the American people sent him packing? Now, he remains hugely dominant, uh, Jake. And I think we'll start off here. And this gives you an idea. Look, these are the House GOP members who voted to impeach Donald Trump. Look, four of them retired. Four of them lost their primary. Just two of them won their primary. So that's two and eight. That is not a particularly good record for those who, in fact, voted to impeach Donald Trump. But it's not just about that, right? Let's take a look at some other races. These are this is Trump's endorsement record, his win percentage in House, Gov and Senate races where there were no incumbents running. And look, in 2020, he won, get this, 96 percent of those races. This year, he's winning about 88 percent. His candidates are winning about 88 percent. Perhaps that's a slight, you know, little downward trend. But if you're winning 90 percent, essentially, of the races in which Donald Trump has endorsed you in, that's a very strong record for Trump. Trump keeps uh, hinting about whether or not he's going to run in 2024. It seems pretty likely that he's going to, uh, and we, although we don't know when he's going to announce. How, how is he doing in the polls? I, I think he's doing quite well, to be honest with you, Jake. Look, this is Donald Trump's national primary support, and I've basically broken it up by different time intervals. At right now, he's at about 50%. You go back six months, he's at 51. You go back a year, 54. You go back a year and a half, 53. These are very steady data points. It clearly shows that about half or a little bit more than half of the Republican electorate is behind Donald Trump at this point. And I want to give you a little history to give you an understanding of how strong that is. 
So these are the highest polling non-incumbents, presidential primary leaders. Those are only the candidates who ran or may run in Donald Trump's case at this point in the presidential primary season. So still very early. Look at where Trump is. He's at 50 percent. That is the third highest of any candidate in the modern primary era. It's the highest of any Republican who's ever run in the modern primary era ahead of both of the Bushes. And here's the key nugget right at the bottom, this star. All the previous highest polling candidates won their primaries. We don't know what happened with Trump, but all of them won their primaries. So Trump would theoretically be running against incumbent President Joe Biden. How's Biden looking in the polls? Yeah, so this is rather interesting. So we had some good news for Donald Trump. How about a little bit of good news for Joe Biden? Take a look at his approval rating, right? If you go back three weeks ago, he was basically bottoming out at about 38%. Take a look two weeks ago, 39%. Last week, 40%. This week, 41%. It's pretty clear that Joe Biden's approval rating has, in fact, been going up. We have seen a clear upward trajectory, Jake. Now, what is the reason for that? Well, to me, it's Joe Biden may, in fact, be getting his groove back with his base. Look at the Ipsos Reuters poll, and what we essentially see is four polls ago with Democrats, he was at 69% approval, three polls ago, 70%, two polls ago, 72%, and now 78%, so a clear upward trajectory for Biden among Democrats, and therefore overall. All right, Harry Enten, thanks so much. Let's discuss with our panel. Sarah, let me start with you. Former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh, who's emerged as a very strong critic of Donald Trump, uh, he tweeted this morning, Liz Liz Cheney didn't just lose, she lost by a lot wasn't even close. She lost by almost 40 points. I know this is hard to accept, but I can personally attest to it. There is no never Trump lane in this Republican Party. None, not a zip. Maybe in 30 years there will be, but not now, unquote. Do you agree? I do agree. Donald Trump's uh, capture on the Republican Party um, is total. And there really is nothing for never Trumpers to do at this point because it's not just Trump anymore, right? Like, we're never Trumpers, but at this, but at this point, it's, it's the whole party, right? It's Carrie Lake, it's um, Doug Mastriano, it's Herschel Walker, it's all of these people that Donald Trump has endorsed. So we only really have one choice. You have to defeat those anti-democratic candidates. You have to join... Small, with- small D democratic, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's yeah. right. To, that's right. Those, they are anti-democracy. They all believe that the election was stolen. They are running on Trump's election lies. They have to be de- defeated. And only through sustained electoral defeat does the Republican Party have any incentive uh, to come back from this incredibly perilous anti-democra- anti-democratic place it finds itself right now. And, and Simon Kim, listen to what uh, Liz Cheney, Congresswoman Cheney, said last night about carrying on her fight against Donald Trump and Trumpism uh, after her loss. We must be very clear-eyed about the threat we face and about what is required to defeat it. I have said since January 6th that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office, and I mean it. Now, she was able to do a lot and has been able to do a lot and perhaps will continue (laughs) to be able to do a lot as vice chair of the January 6th committee. Um, but what happens after she leaves Congress in December, January? Well, she made it clear she's certainly going to continue on. I think it's notable that while she raised a BAFO amount, $15 million for a house raise, she hasn't actually spent all that much. And now if you're able to transfer that money into her new entity, which is called the Great Test, she emphasized those words several times last night in her concession concession speech. That's a lot of resources to be able to amplify her message. And I do think that because of her history investigating Trump on the January 6th committee, until and unless she does launch some sort of a 2024 
2024 bid, she will have some sort of a platform. I think there will be members of the public who will really want to hear from her. I would I would just I don't disagree. I would just say we've seen being having a position in elected office is a good platform on which to draw attention to oneself. She's obviously the chair of the January 6th committee. She's not going to be if Republicans take over the House in 2022. I'm a little skeptical that chairing a PAC gives you an adequate platform on which to do that, even with, as Sungman rightly points out, even with lots of money to you know, run ads and that sort of thing. I think she may be a little bit surprised that her profile will dip somewhat out of office. Now, that doesn't mean she can't run for president. She can't have a role in the conversation. I just think when you are not in office, it's the fear of everyone who wants to run for president but isn't in office to do so. You have to find ways to get yourself into the news cycle. I think Liz Cheney will have to find those ways in ways that she doesn't currently have to do. It's a challenge. And Donald Trump was able to find ways to get up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she yeah, in 2015 or 2016, despite never having any off, held any office or military rank. Well, exactly. I mean, she what still has like seven million dollars that was unspent. And the January 6th committee hearings, they are pretty high profile. And I think, you know, Liz Cheney, her father was the vice president. Right. She mm-hmm. knows how to use her position. She knows how to command media attention. She has all of this kind of uh, interest. I wouldn't say support, but people are interested to see what Liz Cheney will say and do. So I'm actually interested to see where she's going to stand when it comes to running in 2024. And the Republican Party is going to have to deal with Trump, folks like DeSantis, Liz Cheney. It's going to be really interesting to see how this message will carry, especially as the allegations against Donald Trump continue to uh, be uncovered. So, Sarah, uh, Harriet Hageman, the lawyer, uh, former Ted Cruz supporter, I believe, in 2016. (laughs) Former anti-Trumper. Former (laughs) anti-Trumper, who underwent a metamorphosis, Kafka-esque metamorphosis. As many have. (laughs) she, she is now the Republican nominee for that congressional seat, which is a, it's a Republican seat, let's be honest. Um, the University of Wyoming released a poll last week showing that only 16% of Harriet Hageman's supporters, 16% believe Joe Biden is a legitimate, legitimate president. Obviously, whether or not one likes Joe Biden and his policies or not, he is the legitimate president, as has been found by courtroom after courtroom, election board after election board. This is just... An insane lie that has been fed to the American people and has found a home in many Republican hearts. How alarming is that to you? 16% of her supporters think he's legitimate. Um, I'm surprised it's that high. Uh, I mean, (laughs) uh, you know, 70% of the Republican Party believes the big lie. In fact, the big lie and believing that the election was stolen and being willing to say that the election was stolen is the litmus test for most of these Republican primary candidates. It was certainly part of how Trump decided who he was going to endorse. It was the people who were going to go to to the mat for the big lie. And I'll just, I think Liz Cheney is going to run, and I think Liz Cheney is going to run a kamikaze campaign for the truth. Like, you know, there is a long and noble tradition of people running for president to raise the salience of, of an issue. And her issue is democracy, the Constitution, and the election not being stolen. Donald Trump is a liar. What does she want to do? It's not about putting Liz Cheney in the White House. It is about keeping Donald Trump out of the White House. So, so um, Christine Todd Whitman, the former governor of New Jersey, former Bush admi- EPA administrator, uh, was on the show earlier, and she said that she thinks Liz Cheney, I think she said that Liz right. Cheney needs to run as an independent, mm-hmm. right? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you disagree. Absolutely not. You, Absolutely so you used not. to disagree. But the idea, well, see, I thought you were going in that direction because 
She could be like the way that Ross Perot was on trade deficits mm-hmm. and the national mm-hmm. deficit. Yep. She could be the third candidate on the stage making an issue of that. Right. Well, I feel that um, if we could read Liz Cheney's mind, I don't think that she is considering a presidential bid with the actual um, belief that she could be that person in the White House. She is very clear about what her intentions are. It is to block Donald Trump from the to going back to the Oval Office. And I think that it's a lot harder to do as an independent because you could siphon off Democratic votes and particular and in particular play spoiler. I think if she runs, I think it looks like she would run in the GOP primary to try to kind of ensure, try to block off that lane. But can I just say, I mean, Chris, what, what are the odds that, I mean, Donald Trump owns yeah, the Republican right. Party. So, what, what are the chances that people would even put her on the ballot or let her, he's not so, going to go so, to a debate with Liz So Cheney. my my issue with the kamikaze mission comparison is this. The kamikaze mission, in theory, is going to do damage to what it crashes into, right? That's the whole point. And it, oneself. It, right. Oneself and what it crashes into. I don't see Liz Cheney crashing into Donald Trump and doing him any meaningful damage. If we could have, if damage could have been done to Donald Trump and his assault on truth, wouldn't that have happened over the last five and a half years? Like, what? what is Liz Cheney? I hate to bring up the Donald Trump if I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue line, but that goes through my head all the time these days. What more could be said by Liz Cheney about Donald Trump that would would have someone in the Republican Party say, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't nominate this Tell us, sir. There are swing voters at the margins. That is what this is about. It is about margins. And so Liz Cheney is going toe-to-toe. The thing about Donald Trump is in these primaries, right, he made everybody look small. It's going to be hard to make Liz Cheney look small. She's on a deep moral mission for the United States of America. And I think that when she, and you're right, she might not be on a debate stage. She might not like literally be able to go toe to toe to him. But I think telling the truth, and right now she's telling the truth on the January 6th committee, which doesn't have a huge Republican audience. A Republican Mm -hmm. primary does have a big Republican audience. And so at the end of the day, if she's able to peel some of those swing voters away, many of whom voted for Joe Biden last time too, if she can increase that margin, she can keep Trump out of the White House. I think that's the goal. I think the big question is whether or not she's willing to uh, go and say that Doug Mastriano shouldn't be the governor of Pennsylvania or Carrie Lake shouldn't be the governor of Arizona. Is she like is she willing to say that even though she is one of the most conservative members of the House of Representatives? I think so. Yeah. I mean, look, Liz Cheney, when she was was a member of Congress, she voted, what, with Donald Trump 90 percent of the time? More, I think. More than 90 percent of the time. So she actually is a very Trump Republican. And so she has to talk about that message and, and talk about the fact, to your point, that she is here to save democracy. And hopefully that will pull some fractures within the Republican Party in the primary in two years. And hopefully that'll keep Donald Trump from getting the nomination, even if she doesn't get it. We shall see. Thank you one and all. Should you get a fourth COVID shot now or wait until the fall? New information about the vaccines about to be released that could help you decide. Then good news about a little leaguer who suffered a terrible accident in the dorms at the Little League World Series. Stay with us. In our health lead, new booster shots are coming soon. The White House says a new type of COVID vaccine will be available in September and will offer more protection against the Omicron BA subvariant. CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Cooper joins us now. Sanjay, what do we know about these new booster shots? Well, these are what are called bivalent or combination shots, meaning that they are going to target still the original strain 
of the virus, but also these, these new variants, BA4 and BA5 in particular, which are the most commonly circulating strains uh, currently in the country. So this has been something that's been discussed in the past. Jake, you may remember they even talked about a bivalent booster shot for Delta in the past. Uh, the, the original shot was always working so well, they sort of stuck with that. Now they realize that with the current vaccines, they still work well against uh, severe illness, but obviously have had a significant waning against uh, more moderate illness and against infection. So that's what's really driving this. It's still got to be uh, going through the FDA authorization process. But if that all happens as they suspect it will, uh, we're talking about mid-September when these might be available. Uh, Moderna's version of this just got uh, approved, authorized, I should say, in the UK. So, uh, you know, that gives you some indication that there's at least been some precedent for this. If it works, and again, that, that's got to go through the FDA process, it could be beneficial in terms of protecting against severe disease, but also cutting down on the likelihood of infection uh, from these new variants, at least for a while. You know, we don't know how long it'll last, but that could help slow the, the, the pandemic as we go into the fall. These booster shots will, will be free, we're told, but the White House is also saying that next year Americans might need to start paying for COVID vaccines and paying for COVID tests. Why? I, I think there's a few things here. Uh, first of all, I think there was some lobbying to get more money uh, to, to continue this sort of uh, federal government funding of these therapies and vaccines and other things. Uh, but as you know, Jake, some of that, some of those negotiations have stalled. So some of this is just a funding issue. But I think it's larger than that. I think there is an indication that uh, uh, the federal government through the CDC and others have sort of signaled we're, get, we're sort of moving out of the emergency phase, if you will, of the pandemic and reverting things more so back to the regular medical system. So, you know, it could be covered by insurance. If you have insurance, it could be covered, you know, in other ways, but not free through the federal government uh, anymore. At least that's what they're saying for now. If there's a significant surge again, things may change, but that seems to be where things are headed. The CDC has been criticized a lot throughout this pandemic. Um, the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, uh, Walensky announced a, a new plan to reform the CDC today. Uh, can you tell us more about the plan and, and, and how the agency might be changing? Well, you know, I mean, broadly speaking, I think the criticism has been the CDC has been slow, uh, oftentimes reactive instead of proactive, uh, sometimes too influenced by politics instead of public health. And as a result, there's been a significant erosion of trust. I mean, if you go back to the H1N1 days, the last significant pandemic, uh, 2009, um, you know, faith in the uh, trust, I should say, in the CDC was close to 80 percent. And now it's, you know, dropped 12, 13 percent percentage points, still among the highest, I should say, the CDC is in federal government. But that's a concern when it comes to public health. And even the most current guidelines the CDC put out, uh, there was a poll that said only 19 percent of people fully really understood that. So there's there's several things they're going to be doing. Um, they say they're going to be doing one is to speed up the rate at which communication really gets out there. I mean, that's been, that's been a big concern. Sometimes there was recommendations made, but you didn't see the basis of those recommendations for some time. Translate science into practical, easy to understand policy. By the CDC's own admission, so much of what they put out there was geared towards scientists, not towards citizens. And you can see sort of the list goes on here in terms of their efforts, but they are planning, Jake, not just for now, but for the future possible future public health emergencies as well. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much.
We are back with our politics lead, former Vice President Mike Pence, saying today that he would consider testifying before the January 6th committee if he were asked, but a source close to Pence cautions that does not necessarily mean the former vice president is necessarily itching to do so because Pence has serious constitutional concerns about appearing before the committee. Let's bring in former Trump national security advisor and former ambassador to the United Nations under George W. Bush, John Bolton. Ambassador Bolton, do you think Mike Pence would actually testify if asked to do so? Well, I think it depends on the circumstances, and, and there are ways to do this and, and ways not to do it. Um, so I think you'd have to see what the committee has in mind. If they wanted to have not testimony, not a deposition, not raising his right hand, but a conversation with the vice president, uh, not in public view, that, that, that may be a different story. It, it really depends on whether the committee wants information or whether it's, uh, it wants uh, uh, publicity. Speaking of testifying, uh, you tweeted about Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney's loss. You said that her loss, quote, diminishes the Republican Party. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to some criticism uh, that went your way from former Nixon White House counsel John Dean. He said, quote, and John, had you acted, speaking to you, John Bolton, had you acted as she did and testified at Trump's first impeachment trial, you might have swayed the Senate GOP to remove him and we'd be done with him. You'd have made yourself presidential timber like she is. And then Dean goes on to, to personally insult you. But moving past the, that insult, uh, if you could address the substance of his criticism, what do you think? It would have made no difference. The, the people who led the impeachment effort committed impeachment malpractice from the beginning. They drove this thing in a way that produced an entirely predictable result. And by doing it, they made the situation worse. They, they made no effort whatever to, to broaden the support for the impeachment in many, many ways would take a long time to describe. They were satisfied that Trump had been impeached. Uh, Nancy Pelosi says over and over again, he will always be impeached. And they failed to take into account that he was going to be acquitted by the Senate. So the result is they, they thought they surely didn't think they could remove him from office, but they thought impeachment would constrain or deter him from further objectionable conduct. But the but the malpractice of the impeachment effort meant that he was emboldened, empowered by the impeachment. And that kind of failure wasn't going to be alleviated by me or anybody else. It was a fundamental political flaw in the way they went about it. Uh, you referred to Rudy Giuliani as a as a hand grenade, I believe, during uh, the whole Ukraine uh, scandal uh, that, that led to the first uh, impeachment. He's testifying before a grand jury. Uh, he's a target of the Fulton County District Attorney's criminal probe into the scheme to overturn Georgia's electoral votes. Um, you've been in the Trump orbit. Uh, do you think Giuliani would theoretically be willing to go to prison to protect Donald Trump, uh, given the fact that he cannot be pardoned by him, at least not uh, for a while? Well, I don't think he wants to go to prison, that's for sure. My guess is uh, his, his attorney said after the testimony today, about six hours worth, that he wasn't going to comment on it, which, uh, which is interesting. But I suspect it was six hours of taking the Fifth Amendment. Uh, let's turn to Iran. Um, following a string of planned or actual attacks on Americans outspoken against the government of Iran, uh, including a, an assassination plot targeting you, an assassination attempt on Iranian-American journalist Masi Alinejad, uh, who we've had on the show, uh, and of course last week's horrific stabbing attack on author 
Salman Rushdie. Um, I don't know what evidence exists out there, but what do your national security instincts tell you? Are all of these Iran-related threats and actual attacks in such a short period of time, do you think they're related? Well, I think it, uh, what you can conclude from, from all of these, and, and more that have not been reported and are, are still uh, subject to being watched and, uh, and the rest of it, uh, is that the government of Iran feels no danger from the United States. They think they can act with impunity, uh, e- even as the Biden administration is on its knees uh, trying to get back into the 2015 uh, Iran nuclear deal. They think they can carry out what, in effect, is an act of war against trying to kill citizens of the United States on American soil. I- I'm not sure there's, there's precedent for this. This isn't uh, uh, just uh, state sponsorship of terrorism. This is state terrorism uh, of an unprecedented level. And, and I just think it's uh, demeaning to the United States to allow this to happen and still be begging to get back into a nuclear deal the Iranians aren't going to comply with. Well, beyond not trying to get that nuclear deal uh, restarted, what do you think President Biden should be doing? I mean, it seems likely that the threat against the journalist directly came from Iran. The threat against you directly came from Iran. At the very least, the attack on Salman Rushdie was incited by Iran, which had just reinstated and re uh, reassessed, uh, I'm not reassessed, uh, redeclared the fatwa against Salman Rushdie just days before the attack. They're obviously doing this on purpose, as you note. What should Biden do? Well, I think they've got to do more than issue statements saying that an attack on American will be met with reprisal. I, that's obviously insufficient deterrence. Uh, and it means waiting until somebody uh, is uh, is dispatched. Salman Rushdie was grievously wounded. It's a it's a miracle he's alive. So if we have to wait until the Revolutionary Guards or their agents actually kill somebody before uh, we do anything, uh, then I think the Iranians are going to continue to be encouraged. I think you've got to say to the Iranians, we are walking away from the negotiations over the nuclear deal. You are a thoroughly uncivilized government. We know you're not worth your word on anything, and we're going to take steps to protect Americans and to protect the wider world against your threat, not the nuclear issue over here and the terrorism issue over there. It is the regime itself that's a threat, and we are going to do what we need to do to protect ourselves and our allies. Ambassador John Bolton, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. In our world lead, the Syrian government is denying that it has any information about the whereabouts of American journalist Austin Tice. Tice vanished a decade ago while reporting on the Middle East and Syria. In a statement, the Syrian government said it, quote, denies that it has kidnapped or is hiding any American citizens. Syria has not publicly addressed the whereabouts of Tice since 2016. The statement also comes one week after President Biden said the U.S. knows with certainty that Austin Tice is being held by the Syrian government. Also in our world lead, the wife of a Navy lieutenant who is imprisoned in Japan held a protest outside the White House today. Lieutenant Ridge Alconis is serving a three-year prison sentence in Japan. The sentence comes after Alconis says he suffered acute mountain sickness and passed out at the wheel of his car. He then got in a crash that killed two people. There was no evidence of drugs or alcohol involved in the crash. Alconis's family paid the victims' families more than $1 million dollars in restitution, as is customary in Japan. But Japan still convicted Alconis and sentenced him to three years in prison. 
The family of Lieutenant Alcona said the goal of their protest today was to try to get the attention of President Biden. They're hoping for a meeting with him or with someone in the U.S. government to discuss their loved one's imprisonment. And joining me now to discuss the fight to release Lieutenant Alconis, his wife, Brittany Alconis, and Trevor Reed, a former Marine who was recently released from Russian captivity after being held there for more than three years. Uh, Brittany, let me start with you. Your, your family demonstrated outside the White House today. What are you hoping that the Biden administration can do for you and your family? Ridge is being detained in a friendly country. He's being detained by our allies. We send thousands of American service members there to defend them. And I believe that this is incredibly unjust and that President Biden can do something to send him home. And recently, uh, 20 senators sent a letter to the prime minister of Japan calling for him to expel your husband, return him to the United States. Yes. Uh, Do you know if those senators have heard anything back? I don't know. So you've said that you thought your husband got an unfair shake from the Japanese judicial judicial system for this horrible, uh, tragic accident. Why do you think that is? Um, Well, I'm going to answer that in two ways. So first, the reason we think it's unfair is because his Japanese attorney said that people that have been in situations like his that have made a complete settlement, 0% of them have gone to prison. Um, Our settlement, well, settlements in general are very important. They're a very important part of the Japanese judicial system. The one we made was incredibly large. Um, Now, the reason I think it was allowed to happen is because a member of the aggrieved family is a high court prosecutor in Tokyo, and he had significant influence. And and Trevor, you attended the Alconis family's protest outside the White House today. Uh, You recently, in April, were released uh, from uh, captivity in, in Russia. Why, why are you involved in, in uh, Ridge's case? I think that uh, up until now, this has had relatively small coverage um, about Ridge's case. And I think that it's important that Americans know that, you know, that we have Americans being wrongfully detained, not only in hostile nations, but in nations which are considered to be our allies. And uh, I hope that that attention will, you know, get the White House and get the DOD moving to do the right thing to get him out. Yeah, we know the public attention really had an impact on the Biden administration uh, moving on on the prisoner swap to get you out. Brittany, you've said that in the fall, Ridge's leave runs out. Um, What does that mean? What does that mean for your family? Have you talked to the Navy about whether or not they would extend it? Um, So what that means for us is that pay's cut off, benefits are cut off. No health care, can't attend the school in Japan, and, and so we'll have to leave. Um, and if we leave, that means that we'll go three years without seeing Ridge, without talking to Ridge. There are no phone privileges. Um, How much contact have you had with him since he's been incarcerated? I saw him for 20 minutes the day after his incarceration. Where he is now, he's allowed two 20-minute visits per month. Um, Other than that, we sent him some letters, and his military legal advisor was able to go see him last week. He was able to confirm that he received our letters and just pass along a few things from Ridge as well. And Trevor, you're familiar, of course, uh, with how difficult it can be uh, for the United States to negotiate the release of citizens in foreign uh, hands for foreign, uh, foreign captivity. You, of course, were held in Russian custody, Russia, an adversary of the United States. U.S. and Japan are 
our allies, close allies, I would think this would be easier for the Biden administration to negotiate theoretically. Yeah, that's my opinion as well. So I think that uh, if you're dealing with a, a party like Russia, China, Iran, uh, you know, North Korea, Syria, something like that, that it's obviously a, you know, a different ball game. But uh, with Japan, I don't really see there being, you know, such a, an obstruction to bringing Ridge home. I think that may just take a phone call. You know, they're not trying to exchange anyone. They're not holding him hostage there trying to extort the U.S. for something. All it would take was for someone here in a leadership position to call and say, you know, do the right thing, let Ridge go home. Do you have any advice for Brittany? Uh, you know, I would say be optimistic and uh, hang in there and, uh, you know, to just just think about what Ridge is feeling and try to to support him in any way that you can and just know that even if you don't hear from him, that he loves you. And, and lastly, uh, <clears throat> CNN is an international uh, cable news organization. We're seen all over the world. I have no idea what Ridge is doing right now. If he's in some common area and CNN I is on, just in case that is the case or his lawyer is watching or is there anything you can talk right to the camera if you want. Is there <laughs> anything you want to tell him? Unfortunately, Ridge will not see this. Um... He is allowed out of his room three times a week to shower, and that is it. But I do love him. Um, if his military legal advisor sees this, I'll be emailing him anyway before he goes to see Ridge. But just let Ridge know that we're still fighting, that I'm so sorry I can't be there. Um, but as soon as I feel like we've done all the work that can be done here, I'll be coming home. Well, maybe he'll bring him a little video clip of it on his phone, and then he'll see it. Don't let phones in, but it's a nice thought. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> Any, anyway, uh, Brittany Alconis, we're going to keep, uh, we're gonna keep uh, attention on this. Uh, Trevor, it's good to see you. Congratulations on joining the Avengers. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Coming up, one school district is pulling dozens of books from their library shelves and putting them under review. Books such as the Bible and Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. But these books were just approved by the school board. So what's changed? In our national lead, the Keller Independent School District near Fort Worth, Texas, is getting national attention after the school board there ordered 41 books to be pulled off library shelves for review. Many of the books deal with LGBTQ and transgender issues, but the list also includes the Bible and an illustrated adaptation of Anne Frank's diary. CNN's Ed Lavendera joins us now from Dallas. Um, Ed, all of the books had previously been reviewed by a challenge committee. I guess that's what it's called. But apparently there are new members on the school board, so they're doing it all again? Right. Uh, you know, the book banning controversy continues. We should, uh, a little bit of context and history here. Last year, the Keller School District set up a committee that would review uh, challenges to books brought by parents or anyone who lived in the school district area. Those 41 books that you, we talked about were reviewed. Uh, by our count, about two-thirds of the books were either returned to the shelves or put in grade-appropriate uh, levels, like middle school or high school, depending on the book. But as you mentioned, many of the books deal with LGBTQ inclusiveness uh, issues. Um, because of that, and in May, uh, three new school board members were elected to the school board. Those three members uh, pushed in large part uh, for, by a right-wing Christian political action group. And that group, just a few weeks before school has started, and the first day was today, 
has decided that it is going to re-review these books. So just uh, yesterday, Principals in the District received a book that once again, all of those books need to be taken off the shelves as the district reviews those books once again. Uh, and as you know, many of, the, many of the books on this list deal with issues surrounding young people who are gay or transgender. Um, is this about inappropriate content in terms of sexual contact or, or sexual content, or is this about not wanting there to be any acceptance uh, of LGBTQ uh, youth? Well, we received a spreadsheet from the district, Jake, that kind of broke down the reasons why the parents gave for these challenges. In those books dealing with LGBTQ uh, issues, uh, the sexuality was one of the predominant uh, themes. But for example, you talked about the Bible was one of the books that had been banned. They said uh, the parents said that uh, it was inappropriate content, uh, that it contained stories of violence, misogyny, uh, and sexual misconduct, and should be excluded excluded because of that. Uh, Anne Frank's uh, graphic uh, diary uh, adaptation. Uh, was uh, challenged because uh, the, the parent believed it was content that was just too much for anyone under the age of 18 to handle. should point out that after last year's review, both of those books were put back on the shelves. But Jake, it's also clear that liberal parents are taking exception to this. One parent complained about Donald Trump's Art of the Deal being available to students. Say they don't want an author uh, who is a criminal writing books, as well as the Fox News website. One parent saying that website shouldn't be available as either. Ed Madera, thank you so much. In our politics lead, the former chief financial officer of the Trump organization is expected to plead guilty tomorrow in a tax fraud scheme. Alan Weisselberg faces 15 felony counts, although it's not clear how many he will plead guilty to, as sources warn the deal is not yet finalized. But right now it appears Weisselberg would receive a five-month prison sentence, but only serve about 100 days. Weisselberg was facing up to 15 years in prison. A source also says that Weisselberg will now testify at trial if the case moves forward and the Trump organization does not reach a plea agreement. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead, all two hours of it, from whence you get your podcasts. It's just sitting there like a delicious summer watermelon. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow.